City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 12.11 First Avenue. That story is we looked at David, and we looked at the length that David went to to cover up his sin. The way that he would resort to even uh, murdering someone to make sure that nobody knew about our sin. And we looked at the ways that we, uh, more often than we care to like, uh, to admit, will cover our sin and hide our shame, even if it causes more pain to others. But what I'd like to do this morning, as we've been reflecting on the mothers of Jesus, is to look at this story of David and Bathsheba in another light. I want to look at this story through the eyes of Bathsheba. Instead of reading it, thinking about what's going on with David, I want to stop for just a minute this morning and read it through the eyes of Bathsheba. So let's do this. Let's stand together. I'm going to read all of 2 Samuel 11, and we are going to hear God's word this morning. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent to David, and told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and, and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the, king's, at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieged the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling him all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king, king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight, 
Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of uh, Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. So the messenger went and came to, and told David all that Joab had told him. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So as we read through this story of David and Bathsheba, trying to think about it from the perspective of Bathsheba, there's a couple things that we might notice very quickly. First of all, Bathsheba's name is only used once in this entire passage. Did you catch that as we read through it? Only once in that chapter was Bathsheba's name mentioned. In fact, every other time that she's mentioned, she's mentioned as the wife of of Uriah the Hittite. The second thing is, she doesn't have a lot of dialogue. David and Joab and the messenger, there's lots of talking going on in this passage, but do you notice who is not doing much talking? Bathsheba. In fact, she has one line. I'm pregnant. That's all that we hear from her. And the other thing that we see is that Bathsheba is very clearly the victim of an assault. And not just an assault, but an assault by the man after God's own heart. David, who wrote so many of the Psalms, who was the hero, who one of Jesus' names is the son of David. David, who is this character that stands and casts his shadow over the rest of the Old Testament, raped Bathsheba. Merry Christmas sermon, right? I did not quite think through when I decided to preach the mothers of Jesus that on December 23rd, this would be the topic. And yet, as we read the passage, this is very clearly what is going on. And I think it doesn't take much for us to ask a question as we come to this text. Where is the justice of God here? Where is God's justice in letting this happen? Just like we can't understand what's going on with the persecution of the church in China, it's hard for us to wrap around what's going on. Why is God letting this happen? And as we look through this text, what I want us to see is that God is near to the downtrodden. This is something that is, that is meaningful and significant to us here at Christmas. That God is not a God of just the powerful. God is not just a God of those who are in charge, who can self-determine, who can take care of themselves, but rather, He is also the God of those who are downtrodden. 
who are hurting, who are victims. And God is not going to let sin go unpunished. Even among His people. Even among His children. Even among those who love Him. He is not going to let sin go unpunished. So as we look at this story and we focus and we look at Bathsheba, one of the things that we're tempted to do is to sort of whitewash David's actions. Right? He's, he's the hero of the Old Testament. He's sort of w- the one that sort of everything sort of builds up to. We have Israel without a king and, and wandering around in the desert with Moses. And then they finally get to the land and it's a mess. We talked about the book of Judges a few years ago. And man, is there, it was just like a catalog of like terrible stuff, one after another. And the people begin to cry out, we need a king, we need a king. And God says, okay, you want a king? I'll give you a king. And he gives them Saul. And that does not go well. But then, then comes this young man. This young man whose, whose faith in God is so strong that he can slay a giant with a slingshot. This hero, David. And then David is, is chased by Saul and David is persecuted by Saul. David's the good guy and it's tempting for us to kind of go, and then there was this Bathsheba thing, but be cool, don't, don't talk about that. We are quick to whitewash his actions, but let's think about the reality of his actions. There was an incredible power imbalance in this story. First of all, uh, it's, there's an age difference. Bathsheba is probably 30 years younger than David. It would appear that David was probably around 50 and Bathsheba was in her late teens or early 20s. Not only that, but she was a family friend. David had 30 of his closest advisors. They were called his, his mighty men. And one of them was named Eliam. Did you catch that that name showed up in this text? Who was Bathsheba's dad? Eliam. And not only was he a friend of the family, Eliam was one of his closest personal advisors as the king. And this is his daughter. Not only is there a huge age difference, But there's also that whole thing where he is the king. And he is the ultimate commander of her husband, Uriah. And the text also shows a pretty big power imbalance here too. Did you catch what happened? David says, who is that? And his advisors, you can, you can hear them pleading with him, trying to humanize this moment, saying, no, 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 that's, that's Eliam's daughter. That's, that's Uriah's wife. She has a name. Her name is Bathsheba. And what does David do? He takes her. Doesn't say he invited her over. Doesn't say he took her out on some... No, no, no. David says, I want that. That's mine. I will have it now. And he dehumanizes Bathsheba in this process. And, and as we talk about this, this is a, this is a heavy subject. And a difficult subject because I know there are those of you here at City Church who have been victims of abuse and assault. That have had to endure harassment and dehumanization. Both male and female. And as we think about this moment, as we think about this character of Bathsheba, one of the things that it does is it points us ahead to Christmas. Because Jesus wasn't born in Rome. 
the seat of power. Jesus wasn't born in Corinth, the seat of commerce. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a two-bit suburb of a backwater town to working-class parents who couldn't even afford a proper room in an inn. Jesus is near to those of you who are downtrodden, who those of you who are hurting. And it's not just those of you who have been victims of abuse and assault, but it's also those of you who are struggling with tragedy and pain and despair in this Christmas season. Because for some of you, this is your first Christmas without one of your loved ones. This is your first Christmas in a a new and unexpected stage of your life that came with pain. And I'm reminded of, of Psalm 34. It says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of all of them. He keeps all His bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. None of those, the Lord redeems the life of His servants, none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. As we read the story of David and Bathsheba, we see someone who is in need of Jesus. Not just to be a savior, but to be a comfort. To be near. And that is the kind of God that we serve. He is not a God who stands by and says, fix yourself. He is not a God God who, who stands along the sidelines and says, I'll help you when you help yourself. You can come to me when you get all fixed. No, we serve a God who draws near to us in our pain. I remember it was a week or two ago that, that one of the kids brought in that, that little chick, um, the little hen toy. And I'm reminded of the passage in the Psalms where Jesus says that he, that he wants to gather us under his wings. City Church, we serve a God who sees us. Who hears us. Even in these moments. I just want to say for those of you guys who I know uh, this is something uh, that is significant. Uh, that City Church is a church as well that sees and hears and listens and believes you. So then we sort of turn our attention from the victim uh, to the perpetrator. It's, it's interesting. Um, I've got a Parks and Rec illustration for you, but it also has to do with the St. Pete Police Department. Um, I was watching an episode of Parks and Rec, and, and these, these police officers, something happened in a bar while the police officers were having a party. And as they walked up to what was going on, they were all saying the same thing. Oh, what seems to be the problem? What's going on here? What seems to be the problem? What seems to be the problem? And they all sort of were talking that same the cop speak. Right, And what was interesting is, as I began to ride along with the St. Pete Police Department more, one of the things that I noticed is that's a really accurate caricature. Right, That their language is always the same. And so, uh, it was actually one day when I was riding with uh, one of the officers from our church, it doesn't take you too long to figure out who I'm talking about, uh, when he was a patrol officer, that I said, look, look, Wyatt, how come when you guys write your reports, you all use this like really certain cop speak, you use this really passive voice. It kind of, it doesn't sound like anyone actually talk. Why do you, why do you do this? And he said, actually we do that because we're trained to. 
so that when we enter things in, that nothing gets kicked out, that no, nothing is wrong because, oh, you didn't, you didn't say the right words. And so this person gets to go scot-free. No, no. So we're, we're all sort of trained to say this in the same way. And so, so we're going to look at the perp, right, in this case. Because what happens is, just like we talked about before, we want to we wash over what David did. We want to sort of brush it to the side. And the reason why we do that, the reason why we're a little scared to sort of say the words, David raped Bathsheba, the reason why that sort of grates coming out of our mouth is because we kind of want to a little bit justify David. And the reason why we kind of want to a little bit justify David is because we kind of want to a little bit justify ourselves. See, if, see if, I can, if I can make what David did not quite as bad, if I can make what David did not quite as, if I can, if I can use nicer words for it, then maybe I can use nicer words for my sin. And then I don't need a savior as much because then I get to be my own savior because of the good things that I've done. And the ways that we do this are insidious. One of the ways that we try to justify David and ourselves is by saying, ah, yes. So, so David had that Bathsheba incident, not that David raped Bathsheba, but David had the Bathsheba incident. But look at all the good that David did. David wrote almost the entire Psalm book. What an amazing book. So yeah, maybe that one time he had that thing. But look at all the good that he has done. This is, this is pure, unadulterated moralism. And you and I are guilty of it just as bad. Think about all the ways that you try to cover over your sin by saying, ah, yes, but look at the good things that I have done. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I have, I have these sinful habits. I have these sins that just, that are ever present in my life, but, but, you know, I also do these good things. Have you seen my checkbook? I am very generous. Have you seen my calendar? Look how faithful I am in serving others. So, I've got some things wrong. My good deeds stack up better. And we result to trying to justify ourselves with moralism. Or we go the opposite direction. We sort of say, you know what? God loves me. God will forgive me for any sin. So it kind of doesn't matter what I do because God's going to forgive me. You know what? Who cares if David did this? He's forgiven. All is well that ends well. Everything is okay. We treat God like he is a get out of jail free card. You know, yesterday my boys decided that they wanted to play Monopoly with me. And for some reason I said yes. <laughs> Thinking maybe, maybe this one time I'll play a quick game of Monopoly. I'm older than they are. Surely I can, I can quickly whip my children at Monopoly. Surely this will be fast. Four hours later the game was still going. And I went bankrupt. They bankrupted me first. I was the first one out. They got rid of me. And the last thing that I had, the last piece of value or money that I had was a get-out-of-jail-free card. You want to know why I had it? Because it wasn't worth anything to anybody else in the game. 
You got 50 bucks. You pay, you get out of jail. Or you try to roll doubles. It's not that valuable of a card. In fact, when you're in jail, you're still making money. Everything is fine. This is the way that we treat God. We treat Him like a non-valuable, get-out-of-jail-free card. Ah, God will forgive me. Doesn't doesn't matter if I do these things. God's going to forgive me. And when we do that, what we do is we cheapen the forgiveness of God. We make it of no value at all. And the reason that we do that is because we think that grace means that sin goes unpunished. That's what we think grace means. We think that grace means that sin goes unpunished. But let me ask you, if that was the case, how would God be just? David's sin is going to go unpunished, and David can just rape Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Then there is no justice. But that is not the case. Because all sin leads to death and to pain. We see this in the story. As we read on to chapter 12, one of the things that we see is is that not only does Uriah die, but, but this child dies as well. But it's not just that the sin leads to death and to pain. It's that all sin will be punished. City Church, Christians who are here, your sin, just because of the grace of God, doesn't mean that it goes unpunished. Doesn't mean that God simply sets it aside, ignores it, and pushes it out into space. No, your sins deserve wrath and they deserve hell. My sins deserve wrath and hell. And we intrinsically know this, which is why we try to say, ah, but my good things. We intrinsically know this, which is why we try to say, yeah, but I, I, maybe that's not a sin. Maybe I'm okay. And this is where we get to the point of Jesus. This is where we get to the point of what grace is actually all about. You see, your sins and mine do not go unpunished. It's just that you don't get punished for them. When Jesus Christ was on the cross, what he was doing was taking the punishment for your sins. So your actions today have real life consequences for the cross of Jesus years ago. Because your sins will be punished. But here's the beauty of it. Jesus Death provides us the way that we can be forgiven for our sins. Not by God blowing them away, but rather by God taking them all on his own shoulders. By God taking them onto his own brow and into his hands. Jesus' death was truly the punishment for your sins and mine. And the beauty of that is because he took that away from us, because he took that sin, that guilt, that punishment away, 
We get to be his sons and daughters of God. We get to be accepted and given his righteousness. So it is not that your sins go unpunished, but rather that your sins are punished onto the cross of Jesus. See, Jesus coming to this earth was Jesus saying, these people can't fix it on their own. Even the best of them end up in the worst situations. And so Jesus says, I will come and I will take the punishment that they deserve. So when Jesus dies on the cross, he doesn't just die for your sins here and now. He also dies for David's sins. So that the justice that needed to be meted out for David's sin in raping Bathsheba was taken by Christ on the cross. Because it is just like the God who was born in a manger to bring life from death, to bring beauty from ashes, and to bring hope out of darkness. Now it would be easy to end the story here of Bathsheba. As, as the sort of damsel in distress, the one who was just the victim. But something interesting happens. The story of Bathsheba doesn't end here. Yes, she becomes David's wife and actually she becomes his beloved companion. But the place where we find Bathsheba mentioned the most is as David is about to die. One of David's sons tries to throw a last minute coup against David. And who is the one who saves the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah from being taken over by this son? Bathsheba. She is the one who saves the kingdom from being wrecked. She is the one who goes from just being the victim to seeing redemption worked out in her life. Redemption being worked out in her relationships. Redemption, change, coming from something that was so dark and traumatic. And so as we end, as we go into Christmas, this is a heavy sermon, I know. I'm aware But I want to leave you and remind you of these promises that God is with us. That God knows your pain. That God knows this Christmas what you are struggling through. And He is with you. Jesus not only is with us, but He understands and can identify because Jesus experienced pain and betrayal and loss as a human here on earth. And so he is with you, walking through you, not just sympathizing, but walking alongside you with his arm around you, empathizing, knowing your pain. And God is also promising that he is going to redeem the broken parts of my story, the broken parts of your story. That what has happened to you in your life, that what has happened to you this year is not the final verdict. That God is going to bring redemption into your life. He did it with Bathsheba. 
as we've looked at the mothers of Jesus, how much can we see God bringing beauty out of brokenness? In the life of Rahab, the prostitute. In the life of Tamar. In the life of Ruth. As we have looked across these mothers of Jesus, what we see time and again is that it is just like Jesus to bring hope in the darkness. Let's pray.